my pretty, and your little dog too. Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified Story Grid editors, Jerry Bolander, Valerie Francis, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie that they think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner, while two of us play sort of devil's advocate to check the validity of the proposition. So this week, Leslie pitched The Wizard of Oz as a great example of extended metaphor and symbolism in a story. This 1939 perennial classic was primarily directed by Victor Fleming from a screenplay by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe, based on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, which was published in 1900. Leslie will be ably assisted on the A team by Jari, while Valerie and Kim are going to be on the B team. They'll test the theory by evaluating it separately so that in the end we get a complete 360-degree view of the story principle of symbolism and extended metaphor. Leslie is going to start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff so that we get oriented to this story, which if you are not oriented to the story already, you are a very rare bird. Okay, so I want to actually start off before I dive into the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff with an interesting summary from Rick Polito of the Marin Independent Journal. Transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. <laughs> That's Which great. It's wonderful, right? Because this is a wonderful children's story and there are scary elements, but we certainly don't think of Dorothy being the force of antagonism. Okay, so for the beginning hook, while yearning for a place where there are no troubles, Dorothy and her dog Toto are swept up in a tornado that deposits her home on top of the Wicked Witch of the East in the technicolor world of Oz. But when Glinda tells Dorothy she should leave because she's made a bitter enemy of the Wicked Witch of the West, Dorothy must decide whether to stay with the Munchkins or follow the yellow brick road to Emerald City, where the Wizard of Oz can help her return to Kansas. She and Toto hit the road. Follow the yellow brick road. In the middle build, Dorothy acquires allies, Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion, along the road. But once she overcomes the obstacles on the way to the Emerald City and finally meets the Great Wizard, he tells her she must prove that she's worthy of what she desires. And she must decide whether to stay in Oz or attempt to obtain the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West. She and her companions decide to seek the broom and leave the Emerald City. And for the ending payoff, in the dark forest outside the witch's castle, Dorothy and Toto are taken by flying monkeys. But once they kill the witch and deliver the broom to the wizard, and he attempts to take Dorothy to Kansas in his balloon, Toto jumps out and Dorothy must decide to leave without Toto or stay in Oz. She jumps out of the balloon and is promptly informed by Glinda that she has had the power to return home all along, which she does. That's... um. Kind of frustrating when you put it that way, isn't it? Like, you could have done this all along, but then there wouldn't have been a story. So let's hear the case for The Wizard of Oz as a good example of the use of metaphor and symbolism in a story. Okay. L. Frank Baum, whose story is the basis for the film, he expressed his explicit intention in writing The Wizard of Oz within the introduction to the story. And he said that it was written solely for the pleasure of children today. But perhaps he, this statement proves too much. At other times, Baum suggested that he wanted to write stories that bear the stamp of our times and depict progressive fairies of the day. 
Well, the truth is you can find plenty of evidence, arguments, and scholarship on either side of this issue that Baum intended Oz to be a veiled representation of the United States or the setting for a rollicking good action adventure story. But in a way, it doesn't really matter. More on that in a moment. So even stories written primarily to entertain can have a strong message for readers. Every story that works contains within it a controlling idea or theme that expresses a statement about the world or life related to the global genre. It has a tight structure and takes the form of a cause and effect statement that looks like this. A global story value prevails or fails when character, cause, and then the cause of the change the protagonist experiences. But what we're talking about here, when a metaphor becomes extended and interlaced throughout the story, is allegory, where there is a story on the surface, but the real story intended for a very particular audience is woven beneath. So it's similar to the literal action that we look at when we're doing scene analysis, that is what the characters are doing on the surface, and essential action, what's happening beneath the surface related to what the character wants. Now, allegory and extended metaphor is employed when characters, settings, and objects stand in for something specific of social, political, or cultural significance in the real world. We seem to be talking about one thing, but we're really talking about something else. Some examples of this that are probably pretty familiar to you are Animal Farm, which talked about the revolution uh, in Russia, Avatar, which talked about environmental destruction, and the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a reference to Christianity. And those are fairly explicit, but The Lord of the Rings actually is also cited as an example, though Tolkien denied that it was an allegory of World War I. Often writers will claim ignorance when asked about the meaning of elements in their stories. Sometimes the deeper meaning in what we write is clear to us, but sometimes it's not. And the truth is, once the story goes out in the world, we have no control over the lenses through which readers will view our stories. And on top of all of that, bearing in mind that the filmmakers may have had different ideas. If you look at the film's dedication, which I'll share with you now, for nearly 40 years, this story has given faithful service to the young in heart, and time has been powerless to put its kindly philosophy out of fashion. To those of you who have been faithful to it in return, and to the young in heart, we dedicate this picture." That's a really lovely sentiment, and it seems to echo Baum's own introduction in saying that this story is for the young at heart. But it's useful to see how the elements of the story, most of which made it into the film, could stand for something else. Like George Orwell, Baum was a well-informed journalist and a possible proponent of populism. The good news is that you don't need to understand late 19th century U.S. economic policy or politics to follow along. Populism was a political movement that favored economic policy that was beneficial to farmers and industrial workers, a primary tenet of which was free and unlimited coinage of gold and silver money so farmers and small business owners could borrow money and pay off their debts. All you need to know about it is that this was a very contentious issue near the time when Baum was writing The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. So let's look at a couple of specific examples of how the elements within the story could be related to things that happened in the real world. Dorothy and Toto are first up, our protagonist and her sidekick. Dorothy represents an ideal American, As Quentin P. Taylor explained, she is each of us at our best, kind but self-respecting, guileless but level-headed, wholesome but plucky. Her last name is Gale, a play on the cyclonic winds of populism moving through her native state, Kansas, where environmental catastrophes created economic disaster for the farmers, who obviously depended on the land to live and were responsible for feeding the nation, in conjunction, of course, with farmers elsewhere. But we all think of Kansas as a breadbasket, right? 
Now, Nebraska might have something to say about that. Anyway, Toto is a play on teetotalers. He is soberly supporting Dorothy's quest, though I'm not sure what to make of his biting Mrs. Gulch. So that's our protagonist. She has allies in the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion. The Scarecrow is said to represent farmers, the Tin Man, industrial working class people, and the Lion, William Jennings Bryan, who was often depicted as a lion and roared in favor of the populist cause, but was also seen as a coward for failing to secure the support of Eastern industrial workers in his 1896 presidential campaign bid. Now, if we, those are the, you know, those are the heroes of our story. What about the forces of antagonism? The Wicked Witch of the East was said to represent banking and industrial sectors concentrated in the Northeast in the United States. And keep in mind that this witch in the story enslaved the munchkins. The Wicked Witch of the West represented the power brokers of that region, which used the forces of nature winged monkeys against the people of Oz. Then let's look at the places and also the wizard. So Oz is a stand-in for the United States, while the Emerald City, with its charlatan wizard, was the nation's capital city. The wizard represents the politicians of the Gilded Age, who rarely took a stand on the important issues facing the country because there were tight margins between the Republicans and Democrats, so to take a stand might make you unpopular. Now, given the complexity of all these details, it's understandable to see why people would think there are too many connections to account for coincidence. The main point is that even if you know nothing about the politics and economics referenced, the story works and is enjoyable, as evidenced by the way it endures. Now, speaking of that, Jari is going to talk about that specifically. Thanks, Leslie. As writers, we want our writing to make an impact on culture that we're in. We want our writing to move people, want them to think, to feel, to be entertained. The ultimate recognition of that is when our impact as writers becomes part of the culture as represented as a meme. A meme is an idea, behavior, style, or usage that spreads from person to person within a culture, and that's according to Webster. It was first coined by Richard Dawkins in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. It's short for my meme, which is Greek for imitating thing. Memes are like genes. The strong ones survive to be passed on from generation to generation. Some memes have short lifespans because unlike genes, they are not automatically transmitted to the next generation via reproduction. Rather, memes have to fight a little harder for cultural attention. And as writers, obviously, to make our work have impact, we want people to talk about it. We want to create these memes. So depending on how old you are, you may recognize the following memes. Where's the beef? This is a popular saying in a Wendy's ad. It's also culturally relevant to when something just has no substance. Probably out of favor nowadays, but back in the 80s and 90s, people, even politicians would use this one. The next one is the first rule of Fight Club from the novel Fight Club and the movie, which means, you know, there's just certain things we don't talk about. There's certain things that are special to a group. And one of a more recent one by Felicia from the movie Friday which is a to bid farewell to someone who just is deemed unimportant. Now, it's unclear that any of these writers of commercials, novel, or a movie ever intended for these things to spread. But that's the beautiful thing about writing and good writing is that over time, if it resonates with people, it'll spread on its own. So as, as Leslie stated in her argument, you know, metaphor and symbolism in The Wizard of Oz is very powerful. And the real proof of that is in all the cultural memes it has produced, such as... Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. You're a very bad man. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. There's no place like home. If I only had a brain. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. And my personal favorite, which I can't do the voice on, but I'll try. I'm melting, I'm melting. I'm melting, melting! Oh, what a world, what a world. 
That, that was that was good, Jerry. <laughs> I think it's because <laughs> I'm a little bit coffee today. Um, so all these memes have been passed along throughout generation and generation. I mean, this story is 118 years old. And that's pretty amazing considering the impact that Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Lion and the Tin Man have even on culture today. So if you take a look at Pinterest and Instagram and Giphy, you see images and GIFs of all four of them with various different memes that represent some struggle against tyranny or just an inside joke. Um, and that's a beautiful thing because, I mean, who knows if he intended that, but I mean, there's a lot of things within our culture that just resonate with us. And I think another big factor in a cultural meme reproduction is how many derivative works or adaptations from the original have happened. And this is, an, again, another proof point of strong metaphor and symbolism within the original. And if you look at The Wizard of Oz and you take a look at it, it's like Wikipedia, the list of all the things that have happened. There's over 100 different adaptations, of which 40 are Oz books, including 14 by Brahm, which are all official sequels or, pre, or prequels of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And some of the most memorable ones of these are Wicked, which is a book, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, Wicked the Play, which is based on the book, Elton John's album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and then The Wiz, a 1975 musical with music and lyrics by Charlie Smalls, exclusively featuring African-American actors. And what's also brilliant about this is that just sort of transcends race, creed, you know, everything because of the powerful metaphor and symbolism. So there's clearly something that resonates within all of us about The Wizard of Oz, and that keeps our culture wanting more and more. I mean, it's even found in the podcast world via the wonderful podcast, Very Bad Wizards, where its opening music rap is the entire pulled together montage of when Dorothy and her, and her crew find out that Oz is a man. And then my final thought I'm going to leave you on this is uh, my girlfriend went to an Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed Brave Magic workshop this weekend. And Cheryl Strayed used the all you have to do is click your heels three times line in, in explaining that the power to write and create is within you all the time. So if that is not the, <laughs> the case to prove that metaphor and symbolism in the Wizard of Oz is undeniable, I just don't know what it is. So, so Anne, give me a mic drop on that. Well, forgive me if I don't actually drop mine because it costs a little something. But speaking of memes, <laughs> mic, mic drop is another one. Um, <laughs> exactly. Another one. Perfect. <laughs> well, we have a, a pretty undeniable case that symbolism employed in The Wizard of Oz transcends Baum's intentions in writing the book and continues to speak to something deep in at least the American psyche. And probably it may extend a little farther beyond our borders. I've also read, I'll just uh, stick this in here, I've also read that the name for the land of Oz is a reference to the ounce as a measurement of silver. Silver currency, as Leslie said, was an important part of the populist platform in the 19th century. This notion might have been debunked, but it's a fun idea and it contributes to the subject of symbolism. Maybe the name Oz was purely unconscious on Baum's part, but it's provocative. So, Valerie and Kim. I don't know that it's possible to actually uh, rebut this or counter this argument that the movie is filled with symbolism and allegory, or that it created a set of extremely durable icons. So what have you got for us? Okay. So when I was going through and uh, preparing for this podcast, one of the things I did was look at the writing books that I have on my shelves. And there's a ton of them, as you can imagine. Yet none of them talk about metaphor or symbolism or any of the various forms of storytelling, allegory, parable, fable, and so on. Now, honestly, I hadn't noticed that. I really hadn't, you know, because I think I've just been too busy the last couple of years learning the basics about how to write a novel. I wasn't really worried about the, the extra layers. I was just trying to nail the foundation. Now, yeah, I did study that length when I was doing my undergraduate in English literature and when I was doing my master's, but studying a novel someone else has written and learning to write a novel yourself are totally different things. Now, I'm not sure why it doesn't come up, but I do have a theory. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, I've been involved in writers groups and following industry leaders since around 2012, either indie writers or hybrid authors. 
And the conversations have all focused on creating a backlist as quickly as possible, writing three or four books a year, or in some cases, writers are doing one a month, which in my opinion is insanity and will lead to burnout, but to each his own. But when authors are putting focus on the quantity of books rather than the quality of storytelling, they just don't have time to weave in deeper layers of meaning. They're simply trying to write a book that will appeal to as many people as possible. I have my own opinions about this, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> All I can say is that, you know, today I'm really glad we're talking about it because I think it's something that's been overlooked. And when Kim and I were chatting about this and preparing for today, we did toy with the idea of referencing the debate because there are, uh, you know, Leslie alluded to this, there are two sides to this story, at least two. Some people really see the symbolism and the metaphor in the novel and subsequently the film. Other people don't believe it at all. But we decided that that wasn't necessarily as useful for writers as discussing what metaphor and symbolism are and why authors should consider adding that dimension to their books. With The Wizard of Oz is a very well-known novel. This debate is quite well-known as well. The bottom line is this. Books that operate on multiple levels are more interesting. They pose more of a challenge for readers and will therefore stand the test of time. Because they're more complex, they invite multiple readings, providing people with a chance to experience the story fresh every time. The reader is always bringing something new to the story. Yes, it's true that these types of books are harder to write, and they'll likely appeal to a smaller audience in today's market. But I believe that cranking out formulaic novels aimed at the largest number of readers is foolhardy. It leads to a race to the bottom. That's not a race you want to win, and you sure as hell don't want to come second. Of course, there's a huge gap between that kind of formulaic book and something like The Wizard of Oz, and it's entirely possible to write an extraordinary novel that does not use metaphor or symbolism, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for those who they have the foundation mastered, they can write a, a novel with a solid foundation, and they're ready to level up and become master craftsmen, this is the kind of stuff that'll get you there. One of the things we wanted to do was give other examples of the novels that make excellent use of symbolism and metaphor. And interestingly, we came up with many of the same ones that Leslie's already mentioned. We've got a few additional ones, though. And uh, for that, I'm just going to hand it off to Kim to take us through a few. So when looking for great examples of metaphor and symbolism, like The Wizard of Oz, we looked at stories that have stood the test of time, you know, what we consider the classics. Um, the use of symbols and metaphor makes the story timeless, and it's the precise demonstration that specificity becomes universal. So here's a few classic examples um, of stories that continue to enchant us. First off from 1845, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, which was a poem, but certainly is a very iconic story. The raven is thought to be a symbol of loneliness and grief and longing because it comes to torment the narrator with his loss of Lenore, which is possibly a symbol of love or truth, this elusive truth, and, and certainly beauty. Moby Dick by Herman Melville from 1851. One site called it the biggest metaphor in American history or something like that. So the white whale is the object of Ahab's obsession, which can certainly stand in for all kinds of things in our own lives. And it's the creature that took his leg, and now he seeks to exert his force over it and dominate and destroy it. It was thought to be a symbol for God or nature, and certainly anything that a human cannot beat and is at the mercy of. So it's best to respect it rather than invoke its wrath, because certainly going after it, it leads to their destruction. Alice's Adventure in Wonder Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, which was from 1865. This is one of my personal favorite stories, and I think like The Wizard of Oz, you know, has been remade and reshown in so many different ways, and the symbols are equally as woven into our fabric and psyche and memes and all of those things. And this is there's a big debate about this one as well. You know, was he on drugs or was it, you know, really about identity and growing up and all that stuff? But yeah, it really does feel like the search for identity and making sense of the world as one grows up, a child's point of view in a world that doesn't really make sense, adults don't make sense, and trying to make sense of the world and understand where you fit, big, small, all of those things, uh, and learning to trust your own intuition and your instincts. Specifically, he wrote it for a real child named Alice. And so there is that idea that it, it really is a, a story to help children navigate the world. 
The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway from 1952. This novel was written on the heels of his previous novel, Across the River and Into the Trees, which was his most harshly criticized novel. And people accused Hemingway of just, you know, phoning it in and not really living up to his craft. And it was as if he'd sold out by um, by writing that story. And so he follows it up with The Old Man in the Sea, where it's, it's this aging man. And he says, I got one more big fish in me and I'm going to. I'm going to go get it. And here, unlike the white whale, the marlin represents what is attainable if we maintain our strength and will. So the old man in the sea is a morality testing triumph story. And the marlin here is his gift to the world, not his destruction to pursue it, which is a prescriptive tale as opposed to cautionary. The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho is from 1988, and this story is very allegorical and it's about you know a young man's search for treasure. But it's not something that's out there in the world in his journey. It's something that he already has right where he is. But if you told him, you know, hey, you want treasure? It's actually buried right here where you are. He wouldn't have believed it. He needed to go on the journey to come back. And then that way he would recognize it and see it for what it is. And this parallels beautifully with what Dorothy learns in The Wizard of Oz. So The Alchemist is one of those very um, symbolic stories that a lot of people resonate with really strongly because it's so it feels so personal. It feels like it's it, the story is about you. And Fight Club by uh, Chuck Palahniuk from 1996 um, and the film that came later. You know, we've talked about this one a lot during our Level Up Your Craft series with Sean over the summer and how the narrator's personality is splintered between various characters. Bob representing his higher self, love, creation, and Tyler Durden representing the shadow self and destruction. Marla represents meaningful connection, and it's something that the narrator can't be around effectively until he's dealt with his shadow in the end. And so all kinds of, you know, power of metaphor and symbolism to make the story alive to the reader um, really comes through in these stories. The other thing that we noticed just going through making a list of like, okay, what are all the stories we could think of that had symbolism and metaphor in them? There was a couple really great pairings with certain elements of the five leaf clover of genre. So under the style leaf, kind of a subcategory of comedy is satire. And satire is something that I think we see a lot when someone's doing, you know, a metaphor or an allegory, you know, a satire on their time. So Utopia by Thomas More, which is from 1516, was a socio-political satire about the time that he lived in. And Utopia is not actually a perfect place. It's actually no place. Utopia means no place. It doesn't actually exist. And the idea that we think that we could create a perfect society is hilarious to Thomas More. Animal Farm, as Leslie mentioned, you know, that was certainly a political satire from 1945 about the Russian Revolution and all of those things. And then next in the reality leaf, elements of fantasy are a really excellent way to showcase symbolism and metaphor and allegory. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley from 1818, which is considered the first science fiction story or novel. There's a really amazing mother-child relationship between Dr. Frankenstein and his creation that comes through in such a different way than typical you know, horror stories. And that idea of the tenuous relationship between creator and creation. There's all kinds of beautiful, amazing things in Frankenstein, certainly more than just a scary monster story. Also, as Leslie mentioned, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which again is set in fantasy by C.S. Lewis from 1950. You know, we have metaphor and symbolism for redemption and sacrifice um, that are symbols of Christianity and Aslan specifically um, taking Edmund's place on the stone table and these very concrete, no pun intended, to be, you know, representations in the story. And then Lord of the Rings, also the <laughs> father of all of our current fantasy uh, thinking and the way we make stories, uh, Tolkien's from 1954. I heard this years ago and went to look it up again to double check. But it was said that the ring, the one ring, was a metaphor for the machine. Like it's technology. The machine is this thing that we create that allows us to wield our power over our environment and that everyone wants to control over. And would we destroy it if we could? Would we go back and unmake the machine or unmake technology? I like to replace it with the internet now. You know, would we, if the, you know, if it proves to be this destructive force, would we go back and unmake it? Uh, personally, I love the internet and I'm so very grateful. That's how we're able to talk to you today on the podcast.
The final example here I want to give is about the content genre of horror. And I think this is another excellent place that you can really use metaphor and symbolism to tell a multi-layered story. A couple examples from Stephen King are The Shining, where the novel came out in 1977. And in the novel, which they don't focus on it in the Stanley Kubrick film version, but in the novel, the boiler of the, the hotel, the overlook, it represents this the dark tendencies that just are going to boil over and Jack in the novel is constantly having to go down and check the boiler and reset it and clear it and make sure that it's okay. And at some point he forgets to check it or he just gets so caught up that he doesn't. And then that is ultimately what leads to the explosion at the end of the novel. And so it's that idea that they are your dark tendencies that if not checked regularly will build and explode. Another example is Misery by Stephen King. So Stephen King is quoted in a Rolling Stone um, article that Misery is a book about cocaine. Annie Wilkes is cocaine. She's my number one fan. And, you know, it's well known that Stephen King um, struggled with um, alcoholism and cocaine addiction in the, you know, the 70s um, and 80s. And it's so interesting to me that we're able to take these dark parts of ourselves and share them through a story that becomes something that people can see in themselves and understand. And it's a really amazing way to bring your vulnerability to the surface. And I, I love that about Stephen King. He's always willing to mine himself for, for these metaphors and symbolisms and bring them out. One thing I wanted to point out, um, and this will lead directly into what Valerie is going to say next, Blake Snyder, who is the creator of Save the Cat, which was the way I learned story structure uh, first before finding the story grade um, several years ago. And Blake Snyder has a different way of looking at things. It's very, he's a screenwriter and his genre, specifically what he calls monster in the house genre. And this is really kind of a stand in for horror, but it can be a lot of other things as well. So the monster in the house genre, there's a specifically defined house and then a specifically defined monster. And in these stories, there's always a sin that invites the monster in or at least allows the monster to stay. And I think that looking at a story this way is very interesting. And a couple of examples are Jaws, which was originally a novel by Peter Benchley in 1974. Now, in Jaws, the house is represented by the Amity Beaches, and the monster, of course, is the Great White. But the sin here, in this case, is greed, because the mayor could have saved you know, the majority of the victims if he'd just closed the beaches. But he won't do that because it's tourist season. So not only are there people on the beach, but it's peak season, meaning that there's a higher number of possible victims, and it's you know the town's welfare and and money to be made during tourist season, that is his motivation for keeping the beaches open. And then the other one that I wanted to point out is the film The Ring, 2002. In this case, the house is an actual home. It's television. It's entertainment. It's something that we all do all the time. We're constantly on our screens. And the monster, in this case, is a specific video that once someone watches it, they die seven days later. Now, the sin here in this story is neglect. And it's specifically shown through a mother who leaves her child alone to watch television and uh, be babysat by the TV and that sort of thing, and her child falling victim to this. And so here, the idea is if you were paying attention and you were caretaking, you would not be putting your child at risk. So in the end, the parents are neglectful. So just a few notes there on the content genre of horror, which Valerie has a very wonderful specific example about. So I did my story grid edition on Dracula. And while that's not a particularly well-written novel, there, I've said it, it is full of symbolism. Most of it's about sex, <laughs> which is not surprising, right? Because when we think of vampires today, especially in modern storytelling, they go hand in hand. I'm sure there's a pun in there somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Dracula was written and published in Victorian England, right? When issues of sex and sexuality couldn't be discussed outright. Some scholars believe that Stoker himself was exploring his own sexuality during a time when same-sex relationships were illegal. Remember, this while he was writing this is the same time that Oscar Wilde was being arrested, tried, and imprisoned. So symbolism and metaphor were essential. It's but you know, it's all they had, all writers at, in that era had. Now, in Dracula, of course, the obvious example is blood, and it symbolizes life and vitality, the life and death of the body and the soul, as well as sex and sexuality. But it's not the only bodily fluid Stoker talked about. 
He also refers to milk during what I believe is the most disturbing scene in the whole novel. It's near the end of the middle build if you want to go look for it. It's during, <laughs> get this, the menage a trois scene between Dracula, Mina, and Harker. And it's used to indicate fellatio with a vampire. Yeah, that's news to you, isn't it? I did not I bet know that. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, I mean, Dracula is not a sparkly Hollywood leading man who smells good kind of vampire. No, Dracula is a rotting corpse. He's putrid with long claws, furry palms, and razor-sharp teeth. He is a monster. Unless you understand how things like metaphor and symbolism work, you miss this scene completely. You miss the whole deeper meaning here. And how Stoker, how he sees same-sex relationships in that time, his representation of it is something that is vile and horrible and horrifying. Of course, all the symbolism and metaphor in the world is not going to save your book if it isn't structurally sound. Now, I've just said that Dracula wasn't particularly well written, and I stand by that, but we don't remember the novel, do we? We remember Dracula. Most of you, I'm willing to bet, have never read Dracula. You probably started, but maybe only about 5% got all the way to the end. Look, I was under contract to do an analysis of the book, and I kept falling asleep. So, hey, no judgment from me if you fell asleep or, or put it down. I completely get it. So all of this to say, my best advice is to focus on learning how to tell a story that works. All the this, this stuff that we always talk about in the Story Grid universe. Once you've got that working, then you can start to focus on things like metaphor, symbolism, and all that kind of stuff that we're talking today. Until then, focus on the five commandments, the story spine, and worry about adding deeper levels of meaning later. You know, one of the things that your commentary on Dracula makes me think of is that symbolism and metaphor may become especially useful in times and places where there are things you are not politically or socially allowed to talk about, so you hide them inside a more uh, normative external story. Well, that was certainly the case with Stoker. I mean, it, like I said, it was Victorian England. However, you know, that you can have two schools of thought on that. One that t in today's society, there's still lots of things we can't talk about. But on the other side, maybe we should be talking about them. So maybe today's literature is a little more open or definitely more open than it would have been in Victorian England, but there's still lots of room for adding symbols and metaphor. And that's what makes that's what makes this stuff so interesting to talk about and to keep coming back to and read a novel over and over and you see something a little more in it every time. That was my experience watching The Wizard of Oz preparing for this episode because when I watched it, I couldn't help but see myself certainly and other, you know, the artist and the the writer and the creative, you know, the activist. It was just it all became very representative to me. And I was thinking, you know, when you think about all the stories that, you know, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and Kim Hudson used, you know, myths and fairy tales, fables, that to observe, you know, the hero's journey and the virgin's promise archetypal structures and the characters, basically all stories now carry this symbolism and metaphor because that's what stories are, symbols and metaphors. It's a way for us to see one thing, but have it mean something else. Every content genre is a metaphor or a symbol for the life values at stake. And the prescriptive and cautionary tales are stand-ins for the lessons that we as the reader and the viewer take in. So all the historical context aside, you know, when I'm watching The Wizard of Oz, you know, I do, I see myself, I see, you know, a young woman who lives in a maybe a stale kind of place where people don't necessarily understand her and they don't hear her or care about the things that she cares about. Toto seems to symbolize this natural raw curiosity and passion for life, an upheaval of the status quo. He has no problem chasing cats into other people's gardens to figure out, you know, what's going on there. And he, he ruffles the feathers of the neighbor's Miss Gulch wants this vibrant force to be put in a box so it can't run free and she wants to take it away and destroy it. 
And all the people in Dorothy's life go along with it. They might not like it, but they allow it to happen. And, you know, Toto can't be contained. He's determined to be free and he returns to Dorothy through an open window. So then, you know, you have these proverbial winds of change. Um, it looks like destruction, but it's actually forcing Dorothy on a journey away from everything she knows to discover who she really is and what she really wants and that she's able to face any number of challenges with Toto by her side. And I really feel like, in, at least in this last viewing and just maybe the current place that I'm in in my own life, that Toto feels like the symbol of her authentic self, full of heart and brains and courage. And even when someone else tries to steal your authentic self away, it's always going to fight to escape and come home. And so as I watched this film, there were so many lines that stuck out to me. And it really felt like I was watching this blatant battle with resistance. So there's one example when Dorothy's asking Scarecrow to come with her to see the wizard. And at first he doubts and he says something like, you know, well, he might not want to help me and he might not give me a brain. And Dorothy says, but if he didn't, you'd be no worse off than you are now. And then a line or so later, the scarecrow says, I'm not scared of anything except a lighted match, but I'd face a whole box of them for a chance at some brains. And that whole exchange just really like warmed my heart. I was just so happy to see this, to be willing to face down a whole box of the thing you feared most for a chance to get the thing you want most. And I just I want to live with guts like that. Dorothy and Toto and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man. And as it turns out, you know, the not so cowardly lion. I want to say what I want out loud. And I want to really go after it, you know, unabashedly. And then even when Dorothy returns home with, you know, this changed perspective of the way she views home, she still has Toto with her, this authentic self, who I realized just while we were recording that Toto jumps out of the hotter balloon basket, which makes Dorothy get out. It's like your authentic self is going to say, no, 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 no. We're not going in the basket. Get out of the basket. We're going our own way. Certainly as a writer and a wife and a mother and this self-employed entrepreneur, this metaphor that you can leave and return home, not lose your authentic self, live passionately with your passionate and curious self, that you can change the world around you right where you are. You know, it fills me with a lot of you know, courage to not be ashamed of my heart and my brain. One final thought that I wanted to say about the slippers, it felt like, you know, if Toto is the passionate, authentic self, then the slippers seem to be this equipping, this empowerment, and this means to make it happen. It's what the witch tries to steal. The witch has one of the most powerful lines to me, and she says, those slippers will never come off as long as you're alive. And again, in that moment, I was like, yeah, as long as we're alive with shoes on our feet, with Toto at our side, we are fit for any journey. And I just felt very grateful for that metaphor coming through to me. Whether L. Frank Baum intended it or not, it comes through, and it's the exact message that I needed in this moment right now. Well, that was very beautiful, Kim. Thank you. I did not see most of what you saw in it, which is a testament to, yes, the reader or the viewer takes away from the story very much what they bring to it in that moment in their life. And the richness of this particular story allows us each to take something personal from it. So Leslie, we don't have much in the way of rebuttal or, or conflict or controversy here. You, you, there's really little doubt that this story is full of extended symbolism and metaphor and allegory, but I think you had a few more takeaways that you'd like to bring to us. So why don't you give us that now? Yeah. Okay. So as we've all been kind of echoing, the, the primary takeaway is that you have to tell a great story independent of your allegorical intentions and really avoid being heavy handed. Ultimately, the story must work or your allegory won't have legs. Now, there are a couple of really big reasons why you don't want to be heavy handed. One is, of course, reader experience. Readers don't like to be hit over the head with opinions, even if you're right. And your audience really matters. So if you compare the su relative subtlety of The Wizard of Oz, like if you didn't know all about populism and the 1896 political presidential campaign, then it would go right over your head and it doesn't matter. It's very subtle. But with Animal Farm, it's clearer. So even if you don't know that it's about the Russian Revolution and you're not familiar with that, you can see like it feels like 
It's about politics. I remember, of course, as Kim so beautifully demonstrated, readers will bring their own frame of reference and their own needs to the story that they read. So you can't know or control what they're going to do with your story. Just really nail telling a great story and your story has a better chance of enduring, which is the second reason to really focus on the story, enduring cultural significance. Your story has a better chance of lasting beyond the events that you're trying to make a point about, as does the Wizard of Oz, when it can transcend the political issues of the time. And ultimately, The Wizard of Oz is a great example because its elements are used as cultural symbols themselves, as Jari so beautifully demonstrated. And this is a great example because we get to see all of these things in action. So make it meaningful, be intentional, and keep your happy accidents that help you tell a great story. Ultimately, to make your allegory satisfying to the intended audience and others, rather than answer questions of social or political significance, we writers do better to pose questions and let the readers come to their own conclusions. Though most who study the story in the context of the turn of century populism in the U.S. say the story contained too many references for it to be a coincidence. His own equivocation suggests that he simply wanted people to think about economic policy and make informed decisions as opposed to coming down on one side or the other. I love what you say about posing questions, not writing the answers. That is just, boy, that is a great, great philosophy for a writer. Well, to wind up the episode, we usually take a question from our listeners, but this week we have a hypothetical listener question, and it's one that we've all heard at least implied um, from various writers relative to symbolism. So here we go. How important are things like symbolism, allegory, and extended metaphor in popular fiction? Aren't these things really largely the territory of literary fiction? Yes, The Wizard of Oz is the very definition of popular fiction, but these days, how much effort should the novelist put into symbolic content when they're writing stories for popular consumption? Well, Valerie addressed this in her argument a little bit ago, and I just wanted to add that as a writer and on the occasions when I line edit someone else's work, I am deeply interested in symbolism at the micro level. The fact is that everything in your novel or screenplay should be relevant to the story spine, the well written novel or screenplay does not have things that are completely unrelated to your story spine. Symbolism is a tool for tying small details to the core of your story and making them serve more than one purpose, because it's another truism that in good fiction, every line, every paragraph, every scene serves more than one purpose. So let me just give you a really trite example. It just came off the top of my head. Say you're setting an outdoor scene and there are trees and you want to have some trees in your scene. Of all the kinds of trees that could be in your setting, why not pick one that has a symbolic affinity to your protagonist or your controlling idea or the conflict in the scene, something like that. So for example, an oak symbolizes for most people in the culture, something very different than a willow or an aspen would symbolize. So the choice of an oak will underscore and build up an unconscious feeling of might, like the mighty oak or steadfastness or slow growth or solidity without you ever having to use those kinds of exact words. The same goes for choices you make about weather, colors, birds and animals that might appear in your story, minor activities of your characters, objects in their environment, like the type of car they drive, street names, just about any of a hundred little choices that you make in every scene. Make them with the conscious intent of relating them to your genre, your controlling idea, and your character's objects of desire. And that way, without ever shouting, look at my brilliant symbolism, I'm so literary, you'll add this satisfying depth to your story. I think this is a fantastic question. I really do. And I think the answer will depend on the reader. For me, as a reader and a writer, I think issues like metaphor and symbolism are hugely important. 
And yeah, maybe they have been largely the territory of literary fiction so far, but that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. Modern fiction has been, and it kills me to say this, watered down. Obviously, I'm speaking in general terms. Thankfully, thank God, thank God, there are exceptions. But for the most part, we're not seeing novels that operate on deeper levels. Precious few books being written and published right now will stand the test of time. Now, maybe that's true of every era. I don't know, because I'm only alive in this one. (laughs) Most books today are read once and they're put down because the reader has gotten everything from the book that can be gotten in one pass. So they don't need to read it again. Now, if you contrast this with books like Pride and Prejudice, those books are gaining in popularity. Elizabeth and Darcy are themselves symbols of change. They represent the direction England needs to move in, whereas Jane and Bingley represent the status quo. Or, you know, Gulliver's Travels is another example, and we're still reading and interpreting that one nearly 300 years later. Of course, the first, like I said, I said this earlier, the first thing a reader needs to learn is how to tell a story that works. So that's step one. That's a base level skill. But once that foundation is, is in place, writers need to stretch themselves. I mean, otherwise you're going to get bored. And if you get bored, your reader's going to get bored. And as artists, we need to continually grow and explore new kinds of tools that help us master our craft. Thank you, Valerie. All great, great ideas. I hope all the writers listening are going, hmm. If you have a question about symbolism and extended metaphor or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. We love to get your voice messages because we like to feature your voices on the podcast when we can. So that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everybody. Thank you, Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into symbolism, metaphor, allegory, and The Wizard of Oz. Has our analysis of this movie helped you to better understand symbolism and extended metaphor? Have you analyzed a story using these tools? If so, how did you handle it? Do you write using these tools yourself? Is there a novel or a film that you think is an excellent example of these principles? Let us know at StoryGridRT on Twitter. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at StoryGrid.com. And if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor, which is a really cool thing to do, or you would like to find out more about what we do, visit StoryGrid.com editing. If you'd like to connect to one of your loyal roundtable editors specifically directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time to find out whether Jordan Peele's 2017 Oscar-winning horror Get Out is as great an example of the narrative drive of suspense as Valerie thinks it is. Spoiler, probably. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. It's a long one, longer than I thought it was going to be, considering we didn't argue. Ha <laughs> ha!